Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran Chicago-based jazz musician and composer, the great Ken Vandermark. He grew up in Massachusetts, and as a kid in Boston, his father gave him a charmed jazz life of seeing legends like Art Blakey and so many others. Since the 1990s, he's been a firm fixture on the Chicago-area music scene, earning decades of critical praise for his playing and multi-layered compositions. He opened up about his long, fruitful life of music, the COVID-19 life, and so much more. Enjoy. So how are you surviving this thrilling episode called Life and COVID since March of 2020? Uh, well, it's been kind of a roller coaster. I mean... Um, 2020 was especially difficult in regards to music because very quickly everything shut down for, I mean, so many people in so many different professions and in life in general uh, for most of that year. I mean, there was exceptions, but I know for me, I had actually two performances with other people, one outside in the summer recording a a concert for a a streamed uh, festival, and then uh, an outdoor duo in September, also uh, for a music festival, but the concerts were all outside to, you know, spaced out, spaced out audiences and whatnot. And I mean, normally I spend about six months a year on tour doing shows. So to have like two concerts with other people in a year, uh, I can't, it was pretty devastating. I mean, more than just the music part, but like the, the social part, the inspiration part. Um, I mean, I get so much out of touring in addition to the opportunities to play, but the privilege to meet other people, travel to other places, the amount of uh, creative input I get from doing that. I mean, that was massive. I mean, it happened literally overnight uh, when COVID, it became clear how dramatic and severe the pandemic was going to be. I was already about to start a tour with Paul Witten, who had come from Europe, a drummer, uh, English drummer, legendary improviser, uh, really an incredible trumpet player based in, in the New York area. And we were going to uh, do a tour together as a trio. Uh, Paul Witten had already arrived from Europe and was uh, in Chicago. And then it was like clear. I mean, we, we were still going to go forward with the tour because it wasn't, it wasn't apparent how severe everything was going to be. This was like March. Jeez, uh, I think we actually, Paul and I played a duo gig, I think on March 13th. We, we canceled the tour. And then the, the uh, most immediate thing was trying to get Paul out of the country uh, before things shut down because the ex-president, you know, said no one could come from Europe. And it was clear that the EU would, would follow suit for Americans because of that. Or, or people traveling from the States. So we bought a last-minute ticket to fly Paul home from Chicago and got him out on Saturday, and there were no no problems at all. But on Sunday, there were thousands of people at O'Hare Airport trying to get out of the country. So we just got him out in time. And, it, you know, being in an airport with thousands of people, you know, with holdups of more than seven hours to try to get on planes, in the middle of a, a starting pandemic here, I mean, that would have been catastrophic. Uh, so, yeah, it was like an overnight thing. And, and since then, it's been just one adjustment after another to try to keep things moving forward. 
Yeah, and I think that's the hardest thing is just kind of an observer and someone that loves music is that, you know, you see all these stadiums full of people for sports and all of these things kind of have their way of kind of opening up. But it's like the world of entertainment and more specifically, you know, music and jazz has just kind of been pushed back. And, uh, you know, it's just it's been devastating. But my question to you is, you know, over this time, what did you learn about yourself that maybe you didn't realize before that's going to make you stronger as we do reemerge and get back to it in 2022? Well, I, I agree with you. Things are, are improving. You know, 2021 was better than 2020. I mean, I was able to, to get to Europe and tour for six weeks in the fall of last year. And I feel that the spring will be something like that. It'll be better than 2021. Uh, there'll be more activity, more concerts. And like in Chicago right now, it was kind of a gap with Omicron where I think a lot of uh, scheduled concerts have been postponed, but shows are starting to happen now with Omicron kind of hopefully phasing out quickly. So I have a lot of optimism going forward. It's still uh, tricky because I had work in January and February that was scheduled and then canceled, and I'm hoping that the work that's scheduled in March will take place. So I feel optimistic, but it's still, like I said, kind of a roller coaster emotionally. Uh, just like putting so much work into every, all the planning. I mean, it's, it's, it's not just the concert. It's all the preparatory work, uh, practicing material, getting ready to play. I mean, there's so many things that go into just one concert that when it gets canceled, it's, it's really a setback from a logistical standpoint, but, but also from a mental standpoint. So to answer your question, um, to get through it, it took a lot of discipline to just keep working on music. I mean, the main thing that was possible through most of, well, definitely during 2020 for me was solo material. So I worked really hard in developing a new format for myself to work on solo performances, made a record of that during 2020. And that was, gave me something to focus on and develop, which was really important. But in terms of what I, I learned about myself, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I uh, have always been I mean, as much as I can, I've uh, been trying to tour and, and work on performing for audiences and with other musicians uh, as much as I can, and I've always loved it. I mean, it, it, it inspires me. So much of what I do comes out of being on the road. You know, I'm frequently asked, like, how can you be out so long, and doesn't it exhaust you? And actually, I'm not tired when I'm on tour because I'm getting so much uh, creative feedback, you know, working on things, uh, discovering things, meeting people and places. So I was, I was quite aware of the privilege I had to get to do that, and I really cherished it. But to have it, you know, impossible to do that work for basically two years, I mean, it really resumed to normal activity, quote-unquote, more normal activity, until September of last year. So that was a solid, you know, 18 months plus of uh, not really playing concerts at all. Uh, it made me appreciate the significance of the social aspect of what I do. I mean, both the collaborations with the musicians, but also the interaction with people. I mean, you talked about the devastation to the club scene. I mean, going to a, a venue... Uh, meeting people there, performing with them. I mean, improvised music is such a, how to put it, it's so spontaneous and it's so in the moment that it's an extremely intimate process of, of playing music and the audience listening to it 
everyone's connected in a very direct way. I mean, I think that's true with all music, but especially for music that's made in real time. Everyone's focused on, on a very specific set of materials in a way that's unique to, to, to jazz and improvised music. That process of, of playing, but also before and after the concerts of interacting with people and what's shared there, I realized how significant that was for me and how, how significant the traveling and inspiration I got from traveling. You know, I mean, I, I was in Chicago within walking distance of my house for, you know, a year and a half. I mean, I didn't leave within the blocks of, of where I lived. And, and for someone who spent so much time traveling to other countries around the world, that uh, I still don't think I've processed that. I mean, I think I had, when I met a lot of musicians at a festival in Austria, the uh, Music Unlimited Festival in, in November, I saw people I hadn't seen for two years. Uh, a ton of musicians there that I work with and know very well, and we were all looking at each other like it's been two years. Like, we could not process that. You know, and, and, and before uh, COVID, I mean, time would fly, and you'd be like, oh, we haven't seen each other for a little while. But two years is a very significant amount of time. And it felt like there some black hole had taken place between March of 2020 and November of 2021. And for that to happen, like a lot had to be mentally and emotionally shut down. I think everybody, uh, whatever they did and whatever, whatever you know, career they have, whatever they pursue in life. I mean, you had to shut down so many things to get through what had been taken away. And I discovered all that during the process of trying to make it through this period. And we're still in it. I mean, there's still a ways to go, but I, I, I'm very optimistic that this is going to be a better year for everybody. Speaking of that optimism, you know, the one thing that this pandemic gave musicians was that time to maybe work on projects and to get new material out. So along with new material possibly in 2022, how does your itinerary start to look hopeful as we kind of expand into the new year? And like I said, in March, I'm supposed to go to the Big Ears Festival in, uh, in Knoxville, and that's a huge event. It's with the Dal Niente uh, New Music Ensemble, and we're performing a piece uh, composed by Roscoe Mitchell, and I'll be doing some other performances while I'm there. And then uh, I go to Europe uh, to play with a trio, um, and do a short tour there and come back. And then April, I've got U.S. touring with the actual, actually the trio that I mentioned that, that was supposed to play in March of 2020. We rescheduled that tour for uh, April in the United States with Paul Litton and Nate Woolley. And then I go with Paul to Europe and tour with a new quartet with Ispan Grensko, a Hungarian uh, saxophonist, and Elizabeth Harnick, a, a pianist from, from Austria. Uh, so it just jumps back in, and that, that group's supposed to uh, record an album while we're there. Uh, the duo I have with Nate Woolley, we're releasing a record to coincide with the U.S. tour in April. Uh, so, like, things are, are basically jumping back in uh, to the kind of activity I was doing before. So let's kind of go back to the beginnings of your life. Talk to me a little bit about your childhood and how you got that flashpoint and jazz became your focus. Well, I'm kind of unique. <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that's overstating it, but I had an unusual childhood because I grew up in a household where we listened to jazz all the time. My father's a, a, a fanatic about the music, and music in general, but jazz in particular, improvised music in particular. So from 
the time I, before I can remember, I was going to concerts of the music, hearing the music all day at home. I and mean, then my father played records all day long when he was home. So I, I just grew up in that environment. And I'm a little unusual in that, in that case, in that sense, because, um, like I'm 57, people my age and, and older who, who play this music very often come to it not from a jazz background, but through listening to, let's say, rock music or some other kind of music, and they become curious about jazz or and improvisation, and they kind of get to it from a different uh, point of view, which is super cool, but uh, is different than growing up in that environment. So I was really fortunate to be around it. And, uh, you know, I don't know exactly why, but I, I was fascinated uh, by it as a kid. And so my father, recognizing that, started taking me to jazz clubs in the Boston area all the time. You know, we'd go see shows, you know, three nights a week, and then I'd go to school the next morning. <laughs> but uh, I saw amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. I mean, Art Blakey all the time, uh, Savvy Lewis, a stride pianist, played at the Copley Plaza Hotel uh, once a week, and we would go see him play all the time. I mean, I saw so much stuff. Just grew up in that environment. I mean, Johnny Griffin countless times, and all that music had a huge impact on me. And I just loved it. Like, I really got the idea of improvisation pretty quickly and understood that when we would see the same band, like let's say we saw Blakey's band, you know, we'd see it three times that week at a, at a club. You know, I, I saw really quickly, like, they'd play the same tunes, but then they would be doing all these different things with them, you know, the next night and the night after. And I, you know, without having it, like, explained to me, I was extremely curious about that and started talking about it and asking questions about it with my, my dad, and he started, you know, he knew enough about music to kind of explain the basic principles of, of form and how they were working with, with uh, the chord changes and, and the cycles and, and the formats and whatnot. So I got into it really young, and I was really lucky to be around all that stuff and, and meet the musicians. They loved, you know, I mean, I, I met uh, Papa Joe Jones uh, at, at a club called Lulu White's, um, and he, he was so gracious to me, you know, I was, a, I was a little kid, I don't know, I was like 12 or 11, I don't know, maybe younger even, and he was just so kind to me, and I just, you know, so I was around all that stuff, and so that, I carry that with me, it's part of my history. How did you land in Chicago, and what was that migration from Boston to Chicago like? Uh, well, I went to school in, in Montreal and studied film and communications and moved back to Boston after that, 1986, and I was there for a few years and, and played my own music, had some bands there that I worked with um, and performed in, in the Boston area. And I just got the feeling like I wanted to try something else. Um, I had a sense of what the scene was like. And at that time, in the 80s, the, the, the scene in the Boston area was just tremendous. Like, there's so many people coming through, lots of musicians, you know, all the time from New York. I got to see like, people like Don Cherry had Blackwell play two nights as a duo in a small club. I mean, that stuff was going on all the time. So things were really happening in Boston during that period. But I had a, a friend who I played music with uh, in Montreal. Uh, he was from Chicago, and he was a drummer. And I had visited him a couple times and was fascinated by the city. And I looked at the, the arts. You know, you, they used to have weekly arts papers. It was the Phoenix in, in, in Boston and the Chicago Reader and here. I looked at the music listings, and it was like, 10 times, it felt like 10 times the amount of clubs and activity that was in Boston was taking place in Chicago. 
and especially like you know someone working with improv improvised music i looked at like all the jazz gloves and whatnot i was like oh my god there's so much going on here so i thought about coming to chicago i thought about going to new york city and i thought a little bit about san francisco because in the 80s there was a really happening scene there too and i decided on chicago because um I, you know, I, I knew some people here. I think that was the main reason. And when I got to Chicago, the first two years were brutal for me. I mean, I, I've been doing work in Boston, but I was having a really hard time finding people that I clicked with musically. I, you know, I played with some different folks, but it it always folded and it never went forward. And I was really about to actually move back to Boston in uh, in the beginning of '92. I was going to move back. And I just started playing with Kent Kessler and Michael Zarang in a quartet. And Michael Zarang said, hey, why don't you stick around for a year? We just started this band. Let's see what happens. And that was a pivotal decision. I mean, I, I decided to stay, and, and things really started to, to open up uh, at that point in the beginning of 92. And obviously, it was a good choice. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. Well, and speaking of all of these cats that you've had the chance to play with over the years, you played with a lot of big shots and veterans and luminaries. What have you learned from them? What did you and do you learn from them that you in turn teach younger players that you get around? I've got to say I've been unbelievably fortunate in terms of the activity I've had and, and who I've been able to meet and play with. I mean, there's so many so many artists that, that I've, I've been, I mean, it's, I don't think about it a lot because I'm such a fan of the music too that, you know, when I start thinking about, you know, working with Fred Anderson, working with Peter Broachman, getting a chance to hang out with Han Benning, I'm just, you know, picking random things, you know. There's so many folks, it's kind of hard for me to process sometimes. And I feel very, very lucky for all that. And, and all the artists, you know, there's this really huge misunderstanding, I think, with with a lot of the general public that that, that artists and musicians and anybody in creative fields like that, we don't work hard, we hang out, you know, things come our way. I mean, there's this kind of, I don't know anybody who works hard, harder than musicians and artists and, and writers and the people that I know in, in the the world of arts. I mean... And, and being around folks that have done it longer than me and working with them, I mean, you see how much it takes. And you, if you want to do it, you got to do it. You know, you have to be in it and work on it on a daily basis. I mean, when I got to work with Fred Anderson, I mean, that guy played, he practiced every day at the Velvet Lounge. You know, that was his rehearsal sp space. Uh, in a sense, and and you know he was he was quite a bit older than me when I was working with him, but he he had such a, a humble and generous perspective towards so many people. You you saw why that was so important, how much positive energy and creativity came out of being generous with time uh, and working together to make things happen. So I I was really, I mean, as a young person before I, I mean, you know, as a kid, I was playing music, but before I, I made the decision to devote myself to music, which took place when I was, was in college, I, I said, this is what I want to do and just committed to it. Even as a kid before that decision, I saw how amazing these individuals were and they were truly individuals. They had their own way of playing with their own way of living, um, 
and and being around that that energy it was like that's what I want to do. And then when I started playing and, and, you know, playing with people my age, my peers, let's say, and then starting to, you know, do more work with people older than me who, who were so, who seemed excited to work with me and, and let me into their worlds, you, it just emphasized everything that I was seeing already. It, it emphasized why the commitment was worth it because so much came back from it. You know, and that's why I talked a little bit earlier about, you know, how difficult it's been to get through this period of, of COVID because so much comes back from the activity. As much as you devote to it comes back, and it comes back exponentially, which perpetuates the energy to keep going. And so the people that I, uh, you know, that, that I've been around who help guide me, that, that's a major thing. And also the, the, the idea of the tradition of the music, which gets talked about a lot, you know, that tradition is, is about individuality and, and innovation, not about perpetuating the past. And all the people, that's, that's really the, that's the history of, of the music when you look at it. It's about, you know, new ideas happening, different perspectives being developed, and that's the tradition. And I've been around people who, who illustrate that every day they live. You know, and I've done it for decades more than I have. So that motivates me to find my own voice, motivates me to find my own things that I can contribute. Because that's, that's what matters most is, is, you know, contribute and you can belong to, to, the, to the whole history and all the people working. That's what we're looking for is, is people to contribute on some level. And thankfully, many people do. So over your career, too, you've been recognized. You've gotten awards. And I'm curious. I don't want to know, like, your favorite one. That's never a fair question. But what one surprised you the most? What, one, what, what recognition or award did you get that was just, like, out of left field you didn't expect it? Well, without a doubt, the MacArthur Prize. I mean, I, I had no idea. I mean, you know, I, I don't know exactly the process now, but when, when I got the prize, I mean, you didn't know you were up for it. You know, people nominated you, and, and then the – MacArthur Foundation would kind of follow what you were doing over the course of a year without you knowing it, which is kind of a bit mysterious, but that's what they did. And then uh, I was actually on tour in the States with the Vandermark Five, and, and we had had a long drive from South uh, Carolina to North Carolina in the pouring rain, and it was still pouring rain when we got to the club, and we unloaded all our equipment, and it was soaking wet, and the guy around the venue said, hey, you got a phone call. There's a phone, in, a cell phone in the, in the hallway. And I'm like, man, like who? Like I was so stressed out. We were late to the gig. There were already people in the audience waiting for us to play. We're soaking wet. And I got to the phone. I said, yeah, hello, who is this? And, and they were like, you know, someone on the phone said, hi, this is the MacArthur Foundation. Do you have a minute? And I thought it was a prank call. <laughs> I was like, yeah, seriously. <laughs> have a gig to play and I'm late, you know, what's, what's, what, you know, who is this? And then they yeah, convinced me who it was. And, and that was obviously a complete, I was stunned, you know, and I actually didn't really believe it was true a hundred percent because they were like, you know, you can't say anything about it until, you know, we let you know, except your family, uh, because, you know, they, they had, they had to find everybody because, you know, they're scientists that are out, you know, in the Amazon investigating stuff. They are scattered all over the place and et cetera. So 
until it was really announced in the in the in the, in the newspapers, I, I didn't really believe it. So that was that was that was a complete. I mean, that night after they told me, I was sleeping on someone's floor, looking at the the ceiling, like lying on a rug, uh, and like kind of was in complete disbelief. So that was yeah, I would put that at the top. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, you've been on stage with a lot of cats. You've probably seen a lot of shows, as you mentioned, Art Blakey growing up, so many things. But is there anybody in the world of jazz right now that you would love to catch live that you haven't seen? That's a really good question. I mean, I have I've seen so many folks, and a lot of the folks that I would have loved to see, unfortunately, have passed on, you know. I get, that's a tough question. One person I'd like to see and spend time with uh, who I have met, but I would really love to just share time with Anthony Braxton. He's like a central figure in my my life, uh, and I've, I've I've met him a few times, and he's always been unbelievably uh, generous uh, and inspiring. And he actually he was one of the key figures, key reasons I stayed in Chicago because I went to a, a, a series of lectures he did in Champaign and Urbana. And he encouraged me to keep playing, uh, which made me believe in myself at a time when I was incredibly discouraged in that two-year period where I was really butting my head against the wall. Um, so I owe Anthony Braxton an immense amount. Uh, somebody who I wish that I had met that I didn't have a chance to was Mulhall Richard Abrams, who I feel is just such an important figure in the history of the music. And I think so much of what the AACM accomplished and still accomplishes is is based on his activity and his role as a, as a leader in that organization, uh, a creative mentor for so many artists that I revere. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question, but I, that's what yeah. comes to mind. No, that's a wonderful answer, yeah. Um, so, you know, everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but obviously you're living your life. You have a perception of yourself. Who do you think you are? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I guess I don't think about it too much because I'm just living in it, you know. I guess I'm a workaholic, and thankfully um, I'm working on something that's incredibly creative and inspiring um, and not destructive, <laughs> you know. So I, I feel I'm very curious and very passionate about music both as, as like i said a fan and a listener i mean i listen to music all day long at home and on tour even aside from the the music i'm making it's my life you know it really has changed my life so thoroughly that what i do is who i am you know it's it's not like i i'm a musician part-time and then i'm i do other things it's like um, I'm a musician 24 hours. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to sound like uh, I'm exaggerating, but the fact is, you know, I dream about it. You know, I mean, I just had, I mean, and probably right now, because so much has been shut down, I have dreams about being on tour, be, waiting, trying to, I just had a dream, you know, like two days ago about being in an airport and trying to get to the plane on time, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, there's no separation between music and, and myself. And I guess that's how I would define myself as a musician. Beautiful. Ken, hey man, it's been great to catch up with you. I've been wanting to 
talked to you for, for many years, so I really appreciate your time. I'm a big fan. Good luck as we move forward. I hope everything starts getting better for everybody. I agree, Joe, and thanks so much for uh, you know your patience and getting in touch with me, and I'm glad we had the chance to talk, because I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest cats in Boston, Chicago, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Ken for his class, cool, and time. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.